you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Wonderful to be with you, City on a Hill. I hope you've had an encouraging week. Uh, Really glad that we can now open God's Word and continue this series together, The Vine, The Trellis, and The Crow. You know, in the early chapters of uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, we are taken to a pivotal moment uh, in the life of Jesus. Uh, On the mountains in Galilee, uh, Jesus uh, sits with his disciples and a crowd of listeners eager to hear what he has to say. Known today as the Sermon on the Mount, it marks perhaps one of the most influential messages that Jesus ever gave. And and what is at the heart of that message? Jesus reveals the way of the kingdom. In contrast to the way of the world, Jesus lays before his disciples a new and countercultural life. It's a life marked by uh, radical generosity, sacrifice. Uh, it's a life marked by courage and uh, costly forgiveness. It's a life marked by complete surrender before God that is anchored in a living hope and a, uh, a deep love. But as Jesus brings his Sermon on the Mount to a close, he shares a challenging story. It's a story about two builders, a wise builder and a foolish builder. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What is that story telling us? The story of the two builders builders remind us that Jesus cares about your life. He cares about the life that we are building in him. He wants you to build a life of depth, a life of significance, a life of purpose, a life that will be able to weather the storms and stand strong in this life and in the next. 
But this isn't going to happen by accident. There is also a warning in the story. Jesus is very clear with us. The house on the rock belongs only to those who hear his words and obey his commands. Everyone who ignores his words and doesn't put them into practice is like a man who built his life on sand. It may appear strong. It may look impressive. But its foundation is weak and its life, its building is short-lived. So over the past three to four weeks, we have been on a journey to take seriously the way of Jesus. In week one, we laid a foundation in John 15 with the image of a vine bearing fruit. We discovered that God made us to flourish in him. In week two, we then considered the trellis, the support, the structure that will help you grow in Christ. And then last week, we began a journey looking at the various rhythms and practices that you and I can now build into our life to help us keep Jesus at the center. And we began last Sunday with a look at the spiritual discipline of spiritual examination and encouragement. If you want to build a life centered on Jesus, you need to have moments of spiritual examination and spiritual encouragement. Today, we, we move now to some new disciplines, some new practices that I want us all to reflect on and not just to think about, but to do, to build into our life. And so today we're going to talk about the importance of building into our rule of life, strategic withdrawal and gospel engagement. If you want to build a life that's not on sand, that's on a firm foundation, if you want to live the way of Jesus, you need to build into your life strategic withdrawal and gospel engagement. So this message is going to come in three parts. Part one, we're going to look at strategic withdrawal. Then we're going to talk about gospel engagement. And then part three, we'll have time for your questions. So please do send them through. First, what do I mean when I talk about strategic Withdrawal. What do Christians mean when they talk about strategic withdrawal? Uh, here's a definition I put together to share with our staff that I hope you find helpful. Strategic withdrawal in the Christian life is an intentional and purposeful endeavor to temporarily disengage from the distractions of life to dwell in God's presence. In drawing deeply from his well of life and grace, we seek clarity, renew energy, and find divine vision for the journey ahead. So you'll note there that strategic withdrawal is never detachment from God, nor is it a call to escape from our body. Strategic withdrawal is an invitation to dive deep into the ocean of God's grace. And why will this be crucial? for your life and your growth? Well, first, let's talk about clarity. Uh, by show of hands, who, I don't know, last five years or so has made a difficult decision, faced a difficult decision in their, in their life, right? 
A lot of people, we're facing difficult, and, and, and keep your hand raised if you found it challenging trying to work out what was right and what was best, right? We, we, we all do. And, and, and what's helpful, what's, what's encouraging for us to keep in mind uh, is that Jesus himself also faced difficult decisions in his life. Jesus himself had to face difficult moments of decision, And how then did he discern the best way forward? How did Jesus himself navigate difficult decisions in his life? One of the things we can observe about the way of Jesus is that he discerned through seasons and moments of deep prayer. For example, did you ever wonder how Jesus chose the 12 disciples? We know that he chose 12 disciples and we know that was a huge decision with ongoing consequences. How did he work out who to choose? Well, the Bible says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. So Jesus, fully God, Fully man, revealing to us all the importance of bringing our decisions to our Father in prayer. It's an obvious point, but one we can so easily overlook. I remember even the call to plant this church. So much different advice. So many people giving their opinion, their perspective, and that's helpful. And then I was riddled with my own thoughts, tossing and turning. What should I do? What's the right path? What? Thankful for those moments where I could kind of draw away, enter into God's presence and submit myself to his will. And in my own rule of life now to know that I have a rhythm where I can withdraw and go to the Lord to seek clarity, to seek clarity. I encourage you to build that into your life as you face big decisions to draw deeply from God's well and seek out his purpose and his will. Uh, Alongside clarity, the reason a Christian should practice strategic withdrawal has to do with renewing our energy, has to do with renewing our energy. Humans, we're like cars. Some of us are slow and steady like a Toyota or a Kia Carnival. Others are a little zippier, I don't know, like a Ferrari or something like that. But the truth is, whatever car you have, it needs fuel. Again, obvious point for a car, but something that we so often overlook when it comes to our own life. In his book, uh, Soul Keeping, uh, John Ortberg draws on some of the insights that his mentor, Dallas, Dallas Willard, gave uh, when he was unpacking the distinction between busyness and a hurried life. He says this, Being busy is an outward condition, a condition of the body. It occurs when we have many things to do. Busyness is inevitable in modern culture. If you're alive today in North America, you're a busy person. Being hurried is an inner condition a condition of the soul. 
It means to be so preoccupied with myself and my life that I'm unable to be fully present with God, with myself and with other people. I'm unable to occupy the present moment. Busyness migrates to hurry when we let it squeeze God out of our lives. I cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. I cannot rest in God with a hurried soul. So what's a remedy for a restless soul? Well, Willard famously said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And it was great to hear Mark share about that from the panel. You've got to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, there are a lot of things I have found that are helpful in slowing us down. Um, who enjoys uh, a slow walk in nature by show of hands? Absolutely. Who enjoys a slow morning coffee, maybe with a, reading a slow book? Right? Who enjoys uh, a zinger box from KFC? <laughs> Just slowly enjoying God's goodness and grace. A lot of great things that I think God gives us uh, to help us slow down. But when it comes to your soul and that deep rest, remember that you are ultimately made for God and His presence. Uh, I noticed something in the Scriptures this week that I'd never picked up. It's this passage in Mark's Gospel. And, you know, I was looking at all the times we heard it in the reading when Jesus withdraws, you know, he goes and he withdraws to pray. There's one particular moment struck me, and uh, we're told in Mark's gospel that Jesus had been preaching and teaching, town to town, preaching, he's traveling, he's tired, he's dirty, he's preaching, right, he's just pouring himself out. And then it says when he gets home, it's evening, the sun's gone down, the town brought all the sick and oppressed to the home that he was at. Right, so the moment where you and I are like, lock the door, Netflix on, feet up, Jesus got people knocking at his door saying, hey, we need help. And what does Jesus do? He opens the door, welcomes them in, pours them a tea, listens to their pain, pastors them, prays for them, casts out demons. Like, man. Love Jesus' openness to people like that. But that's not the most unexpected for me th thing in the story for me. It's actually what happens next. After this super long day and this super long night of praying for people and caring for people and all of those things, you would think that Jesus has earned himself a little bit of a, a sleep in. But look at what the Bible says. The very next text, Mark says, Bring it up on the screen. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Right, listen, note those words. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Why did Jesus do that? Why didn't he kick up his feet and take it easy? Why go out in the early hours of the morning while it's dark to a desolate place and pray? Because Jesus knew that the ultimate rest that he need was found in the presence of God. 
Now, please don't mishear me. I am not saying that sleep is bad. Uh, We actually have another story in the Gospel of John uh, of Jesus sleeping on a boat. So we know he sleeps. Right? Jesus sleeping on the boat teaches us two profound truths. Number one, Jesus is human. Number two, midday naps are biblical. So, so don't let me diminish the importance of sleep. You would have seen if you, a couple of weeks ago, I, I've built sleep into my rule of life. I've discovered that sleep is incredibly helpful. So practice the spiritual discipline of getting good sleep. But interestingly, the rhythm that you see in the life of Jesus is that alongside his sleep, he knew the profound blessing and benefit and energy and strength that came from dwelling in the presence of God. Isaiah says it so well. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When I'm weary, when I'm tired, it's, it's easy to wait on that next weekend break, that next holiday. It's easy to wait for that next footy game or that next show on Netflix. And again, there is a place for those things. But listen, the Christian knows the power, the importance of waiting in the presence of God. Now, what that waiting and dwelling and strategic withdrawal is going to look like should and could vary for everyone in this room today. It could look like getting up early while it's dark, finding a desolate place and praying. It could look like that. It could also look like meeting up with a few buddies after work, finding a quiet place to pray together. It could look like A few days away with some friends, maybe a gospel community where you intentionally go away to perhaps fast, to perhaps dwell in extended times of silence and reading of God's Word. Um, It's also possible for you to build strategic withdrawal into your current rhythms. Um, Chatting to Danny, who attends our nine o'clock uh, service here, uh, end of last week, and he's, he drives uh, trucks across Australia, and he was saying to me how he just um, driven to Perth and back in a in a truck, and he was able to just like get through like eighteen sermons from the Belgrave Heights Convention and just listen to sermons back to back. And I just, I just think, wow, amazing that you can redeem some of these rhythms. And use them as opportunities to dwell in God's presence. Uh, Is this going to happen by accident? No. Finding time, finding time with the Lord is going to be difficult. Uh, It's going to be hard, particularly if you're here and you're managing a lot of responsibilities and a lot of pressure and a lot of relationships, particularly if you've got a lot going on at home, at work. I was actually talking with a young mum uh, with kids this week who was sharing how challenging it can be 
with her kids to find time by herself to pray, to read the Bible. Some of you know that. Kids are all-consuming. They don't come with an on-and-off switch. (laughs) They don't come with a snooze button. You know, they wake up three in the morning crying, screaming, whatever it is. You just know. Uh, They can be all-consuming. Sometimes they're grumpy. Sometimes they're sick. Sometimes they're grumpy and sick all at once. I've got four kids. I'm convinced they go on a roster. They work it out at some point. How can we make life different? Right? So it's challenging. Will you get through that? Yes. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And I really, I, you know, I, I really respect, the, you know, particularly I want to speak to the parents here. It's very hard to, to get to a gospel community. It's very hard to get your kids together to get to a service. It's very hard to get those moments where you can withdraw. And um, I know that's difficult. And uh, I want to encourage you in that and encourage you to keep going, to keep your eyes on Jesus and, and to really work hard at exploring creative ways to get some time, intentional time with God. You know, when you're on a, 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 a flight, a long flight, there's always that directive uh, that they give from the, you know, the air hostess, you know, in case of emergency, the, thing, the oxygen mask is going to drop down. And, and if you've got a kid with you, where do you put the mask first? Yourself, which is so counterintuitive, particularly for Christians. Christians always, I've got to think about the other person, got to think about the other person. Not when it comes to oxygen, because to be of any help to your kids, you yourself need to breathe. The same rings true for our spiritual life and journey, right? Kids are challenging. Being a parent is hard. You are going to need to breathe. You need help to find those moments to go deep into his presence. One final note about this strategic withdrawal, which is really, really important. The moment you take this seriously, the moment you get intentional about building a rhythm of strategic withdrawal, the moment you start prioritizing prayer and silence and and, and devotion, the moment you do that, you must expect there is going to be spiritual opposition. Why is it hard that I just don't seem to have that quiet time? Why do I always find that get, that gets interrupted? Right, we've called the series The Vine, The Trellis, and The Crow for a reason. Because all through the Bible, we see the crow, the devil, the evil one, swooping on in to steal, kill, and destroy. And let me tell you, there is nothing he wants to take from you more than anything else than your deep time with the Lord. That's what is most important for you, and so that is what he is going to come after. Think about Jesus. Uh, We read in the Gospels, Luke 4, of his 40 days of strategic withdrawal, right? He was led by the Holy Spirit into a place of wilderness, of silence, of being in God's presence. Uh, 40 days of spiritual formation in preparation for what was to come. And what do we discover? 
The moment he goes there, the evil one swoops on in. So the level ground, it's not level ground. Um, when we talk about spiritual and strategic withdrawal, we're not necessarily, you know, spiritual retreats, a lot of people imagine, I don't know, the Mornington Hot Springs, <laughs> you know, white robe, warm water, listening to Enya, you know. And sometimes dwelling in God's presence is tranquil and peaceful and all of those things. Great. Enjoy that. But also know that the moment you put your hand up to go deep with God, you're also signing up for war. The devil wants to swoop on in. I actually um, learned something, well, read something this week. It was really quite fascinating about how crows attack eagles. Uh, The only bird that will peck at an eagle is a crow. Crows, because eagles are big, right? Crows launch onto their back and begin nipping, biting at its neck. It's terrible. But remarkably, the eagle doesn't respond back in the same way. It doesn't get in a battle of nipping at each other's neck. He doesn't waste his time or energy like that. You know what the eagle does? It simply opens up its wings and flies higher. The higher it gets, the harder it is for the crow to breathe. And it gets to a point that the crow just falls due to a lack of oxygen. The same rings true for your faith and how we deal with the attacks and spiritual opposition that we face in our life. When it comes to challenge and adversity, when it comes to the crow biting at your neck, we press into God's presence and fly higher. We press into him. That's the key. Find that place of silence. Pursue that solitude, that moment of solitude with the Lord. Be serious about building into your rhythms time where you can dwell in God's word, memorize passages, journal, sing a song, pray, and protect these rhythms because we're at war. So this leads to part two. We've talked a bit about strategic withdrawal. Part two, let's talk about gospel engagement. So I hope we've seen and heard that it's clear that Jesus modeled for us all uh, moments of strategic withdrawal. He was intentional, focused in getting deep time with the Lord. But Jesus also shows us the importance of engaging with others, of being proactive in ministry. And it's important to underscore that because one of the observations, or one of the challenges for what we might call strategic withdrawal is that there are a lot of people historically and currently who have pushed that teaching beyond the bounds of Scripture. What do I mean by that? I mean that some hear the call to go deep with Jesus 
as an opportunity to completely disconnect from the world and pursue a life of complete solitude, silence, and disconnection from others. Uh, One of the more extreme examples of this approach comes from a Syrian Christian uh, named Simeon the Stylite. Uh, Simeon was born in the 4th century. Uh, Fun fact, he was kicked out of a monastery when he was just 16 years of age because he was too disciplined, too dedicated, too intense. And because of that, he then uh, locked himself in a hut by himself for the next 18 months. He then upgraded to a cave to deepen his solitude. But one of the things he noticed is that people, other Christians, kept knocking out at his door because they were asking him questions about faith and life and all of that stuff. And, and he got frustrated by that. He got sick of people coming to him looking for help because he was praying. And so what did he do? Well, he built for himself a small platform that was raised about 10 feet in the air. This became his new home. I'm not even making this up. This became his new home, a 10-foot pillar that he would sit on. The crowd started to get too close to him, so they ended up building him one that was 50 foot high. And he used to create this little like pulley system so people could drop food and, and water in buckets below, and he would shimmy it up, and that's how he would survive. I know that the rental um, situation in Melbourne is a bit of a disaster, but this could be an option for you. Right? And think about it. No people, no distractions. Do we have any introverts here today? <laughs> You're like, this is a dream scenario. Where have we? Haven't I heard of this earlier? This is amazing. Do you know how long he lived on this pole? 37 years. 37 years of complete silence and solitude. 37 years. And the church went nuts about it. He was actually in his days, like fifth, sixth century. He was a rock star, a celebrity. They're like, he is so holy, so devoted. They made him a saint. Do you know what I would have said? Had I seen him spending four decades of his life sitting on this pole, 50 feet above in the clouds? Get down. Get off the pole. Why? Because we haven't been called to a life of complete seclusion and isolation and separation. You have been called to follow Jesus. And what do we see in the life of Jesus? We see Jesus entering into the mess and the muck of this world. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning God. And it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally pitched a tent. He didn't hide away. He didn't remain in the comfort of heaven. He got into the mess and muck of this world and he engaged with people in a very intentional 
and real way. We can think of John 4, Jesus with the woman at the well, challenging her, comforting her, encouraging her. We think of Matthew 9, Jesus having dinner with Matthew the tax collector while all the Pharisees, the separatists, were mocking Jesus for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. We can think of Luke 19, Jesus having lunch with Zacchaeus. Even after his resurrection, we find Jesus pursuing two skeptics on the road to Emmaus. And I haven't even mentioned all the teaching he did, the laying on of hands that he did, the healing, the counseling, the public preaching. Jesus' life is marked by intentionality. It's marked by hard work. It's marked by service with and for others. Did Jesus take time to fill the tank? Absolutely. But the filling was always in preparation for a pouring out. A pouring out for others. Jesus didn't come to abandon the world. He came to save the world. And what does he say of your life? In John 17, he prays to his Father, As you sent me into the world... I have sent them, that's me and you, I have sent them into the world. Or Matthew 28. Go. Don't sit. Go, make disciples of all nations. Could you imagine if the disciples ignored that command? Where we would be today? If they chose to buy themselves a pole and sit on it for the next 37 years? The reason I get passionate about Christ's mission and the call to engage our world is because while old mate Simeon is sitting on his pole, getting all the fame and adulation for being holy and spiritual, there was a sea of people below him sinking in their own sin, And in their own death. And I was one of those people. I was one of the billions of people today facing hell. And I get the sovereignty of God. But the only reason I am here today is because somebody was courageous enough to enter in. Someone was courageous enough to get off the pole... And do something courageous, something hard, something sacrificial, something that I might know this Jesus. My mate's older sister used to drive out of her way to pick me up on Sunday so that I could come to church. She sacrificed whatever comfort, whatever ease, whatever, so that I could come to church because she was desperate for me to know the gospel. She would also listen take hours to listen over the phone to my ridiculous questions as I was reading the Bible, trying to grapple with what's going on. Was the world really made in seven days? Where's the dinosaurs? I've read about Good Friday. Where's the Easter bunny? Can you help me? And she would listen lovingly, prayerfully, pointing me to the truth. Again, I get the sovereignty of God. But I am here today because somebody 
made a decision to step out and engage. And that's your story as well. You are here. If you are in Christ, if you believe the gospel, if you're a Christian, if you're fo- you are here because somebody stepped off the pole to help you. It could have been a mom, could have been a dad, could have been a teacher at school, a youth minister, a friend. Somebody entered in. And here's the point in saying that. The baton is now in your hands. Now is your time. Now is your turn. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, so we are a sent people. You do know that. We are all missionaries. We're all missionaries. Wherever we go, wherever we work, wherever we live, we're all missionaries called to share the good news of the gospel. Discipleship is not just about us. Yes, we grow. Yes, we flourish. But discipleship is not just about you. Discipleship is a call to follow Jesus. And where is Jesus? By his spirit, he is seeking to save the lost. Jesus is in that office trying to pursue that woman, your work colleague, who right now doesn't know her value and is trying to find answers in stupid things. And Jesus is desperately trying to help her see the truth. Jesus is in the apartment block where that couple are just doing life hard and always at each other's necks and finding life, they're one challenge to the next. And, and Jesus is there desperately by his spirit, hoping that they might see a renewed hope and a renewed love in him. Jesus is there at that pub with that tradie who smokes like a chimney and swears like a sailor. And Jesus is there because he wants people to know that everybody matters and that God desires that none shall perish. And so where are we? Where are you? Where am I in the story of God's great mission? I can tell you God is passionate. This church, the heartbeat of this church... Know Jesus. Make Jesus known. Church, listen, it's not a country club. It's not a, a, a gathering for like-minded people looking to meet other people. Community is important, absolutely. Learning about the Bible, important. Singing songs to Jesus, important. Right? We need all of those things. But the heartbeat of this church is a deep, abiding, challenging mission to know Jesus, to make Jesus known. I love that quote. Don't know who said it, but a ship in a harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. You are built 
You are wired. You've been filled with the Holy Ghost to get amongst it, to live an adventurous life, to serve when others are receiving, to be marked by generosity, prayer, boldness, not hiding your faith in the office or the university, but standing like a city on a hill. It's bright, it's bold. So yes, we strategically withdraw. We need the fountain of God's grace. It's like, Lord, send me in. And that's the, that's the call. No, Jesus, make Jesus. Is it an easy call? No, it's a hard call. It requires lots of hard decisions, intentional decisions. I was listening to an um, interview I think it was on SEN Sports Radio a couple of months back. And they were interviewing, a, or having a chat with a, the coach of a football club. I, I won't mention the football club because it's a bit of a swear word in our house. Um, but they were chatting with Craig McRae. And, um, <laughs> and he was, they were asking him, said, we've heard you've got um, stairs, uh, pictures of stairs all around the club. Locker room, the, the community, you know, the training area, the gym, all these images of stairs. And what's the deal with all these steps, steps and stairs? And he says, um, um, he was reflecting how he was at the airport and he noticed how the, 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 the steps are alongside the elevator and that most people that he had observed take the elevator, very few people take the steps. And then he says, so in talking with the players, about rising up the ladder, I explained that the only way to do that in our game is to take the steps. Now in footy, taking the steps means that you, you're training hard. That means you, you do the extra few laps when everybody else is having the shower. It means you don't play for yourself, you work hard for the team. It means that when someone's going for the ball, you shepherd, you do what's called a one percenter. Right? It doesn't come up on your stat sheet, but you do it. You do the hard thing. You take the step to help the team grow. For the Christian, what is taking the steps? It looks like serving when others are sleeping. It looks like giving when others are consuming. It looks like praying for gospel opportunity. It looks like stepping out with boldness. Is any of that easy? No. When Jesus said, come follow me, he explained there would be a cost. But I've come to discover, the longer I've walked with Jesus, it's often the hardest things in life that produce the most fruit. All right. All right. Here we are. We'd love to dive into some questions, continue conversation. Let's do it. Uh, Question one. As a mom of young kids, I find it hard to build in rhythms that will help me follow Jesus. The hardest thing is that it feels like my spouse is not as committed to my trellis Hmm. as his own. I think that ends there. Comment. The hardest thing is that it feels like my spouse is not as committed to my trellis as his own. Hmm. Well, I'm going to start with you, Steph, because you are a Mom of young kids. I am a mom of young kids. Yeah. How do you connect with that question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's two, two parts of it. Just the recognition that when you've got young kids, it's really difficult. Well, it's different. It's, it's difficult. There are challenges. I think the main challenge to finding time with Jesus is working out what that looks like in a chaotic 
rhythm household. There was a season particularly, you know, most of my kids are six and four. And I remember when they're like one and two and just constant, I'm getting no sleep. I, there was no time I could spend away from them, just always on. And I realised the only way I'm going to read the Bible is if I'm reading it out loud so I don't get distracted. Um, the, the same passage, that whatever the passage was that we would um, be looking at on Sunday, I'm like, I'm too exhausted to work out what to read or to read a new passage every day. I'm just going to read that one aloud to Josh when he's in his you know, high chair every day and just sort of working it into the chaos to be okay with spending time with Jesus in the chaos. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's a challenge. Um, but I think being okay with some of the, the, the... Jesus being in the chaos, I think. I'd encourage you in that. Um, and in terms of... Guy, do you want to reflect yeah. on that, that, uh, that second piece? Yeah. Yeah, I think I really appreciate um, such a personal question and such an honest question. Um, I think if I was talking to the, the, the husband, um, I'd want you to know how important it is for you to serve as the sacrificial servant head in your home. Uh, the Bible's really clear. I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. I don't nail that. Lots of times I failed at that. But that's the goal. That's the standard. So what does a trellis look like for you, men who are married? It looks like working hard to create opportunities, encouragement, rhythm for your wife. Um, So very, very important. Uh, There's warnings in passages uh, about husbands who are uh, neglecting that. And we'd need to feel that and, and own that. So uh, it, it sounds like you're, you're, you're taking your own discipleship really seriously and, and building your own trellis, and I think that's fantastic. Please, please, please ensure that your rule of life uh, is one actually that, you, that serves her, but that you actually work together, right? So take time to ask her. I think that's the posture of a husband, a Christian husband, is to ask, how can I serve you? How can I help you um, grow in Jesus? Uh, that would be my encouragement if I was speaking to them. And I think for the wife who's in the midst of that, um, continue to pray for your husband in that. Uh, continue to share openly. Have you shared this with him? Has there been a loving, respectful moment where you can open up and say, hey, I'm finding this difficult? Uh, those conversations I've had with Vanessa have never been especially comfortable, but helpful. Uh, so creating a safe space where you can communicate that to your husband. Honestly, hold the hand say, hey, this is how I'm feeling. It would be great if you could help me in this way. And if you need help, counselling is always a great thing to do as well. Other Christians getting around. It's excellent. Next question. How can we volunteer to help parents who cannot afford babysitters or do not have connections to look after kids so they can strategically withdraw? I love that sacrificial heart there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I like from personal experience, it's just always been wonderful when younger people who are available and want to serve in that way come up and say, hey, I don't know what your schedule will look like. Just letting you know I've got some time. If this is one way I can help, keen to help. And I'm like, yes, and amen, let's get your phone number and make it happen. Because <laughs> it is such a gift um, uh, and, and very much appreciated. So I think just being forward in that, knowing that that won't be weird, that would be like a, a real gift and even just mm. offering that. Uh, if you don't know parents with mm. young kids... Um, you know, there'll be someone at church who does. So I think, um, you know, just connecting with the staff or connecting with someone else and, and asking that question and, and putting that 
that forward, yeah. Yeah, uh, by all means, uh, let us know if that's you because there'd be a bunch of parents I think would appreciate that. I know there are certain, you know, this groups, there's like a, a, a mums and kids group that meets during the week, that'd be a good place to connect in. Um, who knows, maybe we could create something of a bit of a babysitting service community idea, I don't know, it's just a thought that we could develop in the yeah, future. absolutely. Third question, if I am feeling isolated, what are some practical steps you'd recommend for me to feel less isolated and more gospel-engaged guy? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, not knowing your context and what you're currently doing, it can be hard to speak into this. So if this is you, come and love to chat with you afterwards um, because sometimes you can be around people but still feel isolated in life, um, not understood and all those kinds of things. Um, practically... Uh, I, you know, I think it's just helpful to, to invest yourself in context where you know you're going to interact with other people. Um, so, like, practically, uh, we have gospel communities at City on a Hill and different versions and variations of that. Uh, I know that, these, you know, guys are getting together in, like, triplets to pray, and I mentioned the mums and kids groups, and we have gospel communities meeting through the week. And they're, they're a wonderful context, not only to unpack what you're hearing on a Sunday, but to share a bit of your life and, Lord willing, build relationships with people. Uh, serving in a church ministry team would be another way that you could potentially uh, engage with other people and begin to not feel so isolated in life. I, I know for me, I, you know, I, it's, it's doing something forward focusing, but alongside others that actually strengthens and reminds me that I'm doing life with others. What do you think? No, that's excellent. Amen yeah. and amen. I think we've got one more question. Time for one more question. I would love to talk to someone about Jesus, but every time I make up my mind to do it, I begin to look at my own life and see so many flaws in it that I question whether I'm worthy to spread the gospel. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much uh, for asking that question, and thank you so much for um, being part of City on a Hill. Um, we really love uh, that God brings um, so many different people to City on a Hill. Some people have been Christians their whole lives, others like yourself who are exploring Jesus for the first time. And uh, I think a lot of us as Christians often, have, or even when we're thinking about becoming Christians, have had that feeling, uh, that sense of self-doubt. One of the great hopes and promises of the gospel is that Jesus uh, welcomes us in all our mess and all our muck, uh, he is not looking for you to be perfect. He's not looking for you to have your life together. Um, he welcomes you in the midst of your sin. The Bible says that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. So um, the first thing to say is that uh, Jesus is inviting you because of his life, death and resurrection to put your trust in him, not in yourself. To trust him, that his grace and his uh, forgiveness is good news. And the good news of the gospel is that when you say yes to Jesus, the promise is uh, you're forgiven, uh, the promise is that you're made new, and the promise is that you are then filled with the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about gospel engagement, when we talk about spreading the word, when we talk about dealing with areas of sin in our life, we're, we're not talking about doing that in our own strength. We're doing that in the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So I just want to encourage you uh, to step forward to receive the good news of the gospel and to trust uh, his power to save. And again, if that's you, uh, Steph or me or anyone in the prayer team, we'd love to pray with you and talk that through because that's a really great question. We'd love to help you on that journey. Amen. Thank you for your questions. Love having this as a conversation together as a family in Christ, which we're going to continue in our gospel communities this week. Again, next week, uh, make sure you come. Come with your questions. Uh, How about I pray and then we're going to sing. Um, Our Lord God, thank you so much for the good news of Jesus, that though we are sinners in Christ, we are redeemed, we are set free, we have new life, we have hope. Thank you for your grace, which fills us, which is anew every day. Lord, I pray for us that as we abide in Christ, as we live in that grace, as we welcome your love and your peace and your presence, that you might empower us in that to pour out ourselves like Christ poured out himself that we might be people who are on mission for you with great sacrifice, with great courage, and with great joy. It's the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.